HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. In the Sauce is brought to you by Oatly, the vegan plant-based oat milk originally from Sweden that's now making their oat milk on this side of the Atlantic. For more information, go to Oatly.com. That's O-A-T-L-Y.com. This week on Meet and 3, it's our season four finale, and we're sharing some of our greatest kitchen joys. Maybe most people consider making it too much work or too messy, but this is the food that's worth the work and worth the wait. You always know where the thing is because you put it away the right way the first time. You just sort of stand there and, you know, with your hand on your hip and one leg outstretched, glass of wine in your hand, staring into the refrigerator going, okay, speak to me. Oh yeah, what are you doing with the celery tonight? I'm making a simple syrup for a gin cocktail with the celery. And I also found a recipe for a celery soup that's going to use up the celery and the potatoes and some of that dill that we still have hanging out in there. (laughs) Tune in and be inspired to find the joy in your kitchen. And don't forget to subscribe to Meat in 3 wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Aaron Patinkin, co-founder and CEO of Ovenly, one of New York's top-rated bakeries. Evanly has been named one of the best bakeries in New York City by Time Out New York, The Village Voice, and about a zillion other food blogs and media sources. Evanly Baked Goods have won the praise of the New York Times, Food 52, The Wall Street Journal, Eater, Serious Eats, Savor, and many others. Erin is a force and an incredible resource for new founders. Generous and candid, she's on a mission not just to run her company better than the standard, but also to help founders with less access to capital build their dreams. Her writing has been featured in Lucky Peach and Vice. She's been recognized as one of New York's, I love this, most badass women, we're going to talk about that, in food um, in New York City by Zagat and as quote-unquote one to watch by Condé Nast. And she's executive producer and co-host of Start to Sale on Vox. Erin, I think you know how excited I am to have you here. Um, I feel like we have a lot of the same goals in life, and um, I've been wanting to have this conversation for a long time. So welcome, and yay. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Um, You are our first guest in our, I guess this is our third season, Um, and I feel like from season one, I've just been wanting to talk. And actually, it's good that it took this long because we were going through fundraising and I don't even know if I would have been able to have as like rich of a conversation earlier on. Mm-hmm. So I'm, this is very good timing. I'm good. very psyched that you're here. Yeah. Um, but before we get into all the juicy stuff, um, I know you grew up in Chicago. Tell That's me a right. little bit about yourself as a kid. Were you entrepreneurial? Were you into cookies? What was your sort of vibe? 
My dream was mm-hmm. to be a cast member of Saturday Night Live when I was a child, and I used to awesome. wash grapes and give my Emmy awards-winning <laughs> speech, and I remember standing on a stool and doing that. I used to have a recurring dream that Steve Martin was my best friend. Aww. So, But I, you know, f- oddly enough, I remember doing that specifically while I was helping my mom in the kitchen. I would, right. you know, stand at the sink washing things, it's giving so my funny. Emmy award-winning speech. I um, would do cooking lessons <laughs> when I was washing things in the sink. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so were you like, just mm-hmm. so I can picture you, were you a physical comedy kind of kid? Were you like the kind of, like, were you, did no, you use your body like in a the, funny way or well, were you like dry humor? So I am a trained actor. I studied acting from seven to uh, 26. I worked in a theater company in Chicago. Right. Um, I have a BFA in actually directing and I did improv for eight years, but right. I knew, you know, but that was a really childhood love and by the time yeah. I got to college I kind of knew that I didn't want to be a performer but I right. loved it so much yeah. that I didn't know what I wanted to do so my junior year of college I actually switched to a directing specialist got it from acting specialist which you could do at my university and that actually I think you know I've taken a long time kind of digesting who I am yeah. and I think all that theater and improv and directing is exactly why I can be a leader and an entrepreneur yep. um at some point in time, I'm going to think about this enough to put pen to paper. But yeah. Uh, yeah, so I grew up in Chicago. I, you know, wanted to be a professional actor. That's always thought I what I thought I was going to do. Have you done your Myers Briggs? Do you I know? Like, think so. are you like an I, ENF? No idea. Yeah. I, I mean, I know Myers Briggs, but I've never right. done it. I think it'd be fun for you to do it and find out. I will do it okay. later. All right. Um, so <laughs> or we could just yeah, I'm like, like stop the podcast or, and you could continue. Or I could take it now. So, yeah, so I really was informed by that experience. And I think that's some people who are not artists, Mm -hmm. uh, what they don't realize about artists is I think there's this really incorrect trope about artists being lazy, but artists are the most hardworking people I've ever met. You know, I always was going to school, going to theater classes, performing, you know, in high school, I would come home at nine or 10 at night. Um, In college, I would go to class and then perform or direct or whatever it was I was doing. And so I think I really was informed by that experience and it made me just a workhorse. Like I was used to always working all the time. And my guess is also, you know, the creative people that I know in my life are some of the most like self-critical people I know, but they're also so used to rejection kind of constantly (laughs) coming at them that they also have to flip that into the most self-motivated people. I, I actually know. tell entrepreneurs today, I'm like, if you want to do yourself a favor, take an improv class because yeah. you have to learn to fail and you have to learn to take criticism. Yeah. Um, I think having had that experience, I just, you know, as a performer or as an artist, you're just ripped apart every single yeah. day by whoever's training you. Yeah. That's part of the process to become better. Yeah. And so I never really felt really, um, hurt by criticism and even even in you know videos that we've done you know people will comment I just don't read that stuff I I don't you know I, right. I it took me to a place that maybe a more advanced entrepreneur would get to uh, right at the start yeah that's admirable I mean I I remember my first no of each thing the first store that said no the first people that didn't like it the first you know investor that was like mm, not for me yeah. and I mean honestly I got into bed with each one and did that whole sort of what am I doing I'm not meant for this I'm not a businessy person I'm gonna steer my team into like a iceberg you know blah 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 who do I think I <laughs> that whole thing well, that's a little imposter syndrome in there too, which well, I think I sure. suffered from for a long time. Yeah, too, I mean, to me, that like the two get very conflated. Yeah. I just get sad. Yeah, um, but I will say that I've gotten much better. At yeah, it, I mean, as you it have happens. to it, yeah. as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, if you don't get over that, there it, you cannot move forward. No. And and it also helps. I also thought that training helped because everyone is going to tell you what your business should be for yeah. the rest of time from the <laughs> cab driver yep. to your mentor. Like everyone wants it's to true. tell you what your business should be. Yep. And I think that training as an artist really helped me sort of steer through all the yeah. noise and those cacophony, How to the listen, cacophony yeah. of voices. Right. Um, because, you know, the truth of the matter is at some point, even as an artist, you have to decide 
no, I, you know, I made this choice and I still think it's right and I'm going to do it. Yeah. And, and it's, it just helps you. I really think that that training helped me be a risk taker. And it's something that I've noticed about myself as I got, have gotten older is that a lot of my friends are pretty rigid yeah. and they get really worried about change. They get worried about job changes or, you know, mm-hmm. you know, typical day-to-day life things. And, yep. and I have to say, I've seen a lot of friends not make decisions because they're, they're so, so scared of the other side. Yep. I'm the opposite to the point that I think I sometimes quick. am too quick yeah. to turn and judge and, and make decisions where, um, but that change doesn't freak me yeah. out at all. And no doesn't freak me out. I yeah. think that the thing that, you know, as a starting entrepreneur, that was more difficult for me was the, you know, I don't know how to put it in a delicate way, but just how, what assholes people would be. Yeah. You know, I, I was used to criticism. I, I, you know, I was in the arts, so I dealt yeah. with a lot of egos, Yeah, but just this idea of people who you didn't know just just being such jerks to you for no reason. Do you for, think that has to do with the money? The well, money no, not just that. Or? Like, you know, vendors, you know, yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I mean, yeah. people you'd, you know, yeah. when Agatha and I were starting Ovenly, I remember we met another bakery owner and he was introduced to us to provide us with advice. And so we sat down, we had a meeting with him and he owned a bakery. I don't know if it exists anymore. And he was like, let me tell you, just don't even start it. You know, it's just right. like, why would you squash like yeah. two twenty somethings dreams yeah. when they already have this company and they're setting it out? Yeah. You know, I, and, but I have to say those experiences also inform me. So when people tell me ideas, like even if I don't yep. like the idea in my head, yeah. I'll say, you know what, this is your dream. Yeah. Like, here's how I would go about it and just be aware of right. the risks. Maybe and, don't quit your day job yeah, just yet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but did you go into, did you go into acting professionally after college? No, I actually, by the time I was a senior, I knew I did not want to do that. Right. I, decided so my senior year of college I started working for a local school system uh, as sort of the teacher putting together after school programming in theater right and then I liked that and I decided and I I have you know I went to a Jesuit high school and Mm -hmm. so this idea of social justice and and working towards something that was based on a mission always was really ingrained into me even though I was not brought up religiously at all Catholic or Jewish and um that was something that really always appealed to me, which is interesting now because when I was in my early 20s, I always knew that I wanted to work for something that was more mission-based. Right. But, you know, that was 2001. It's very different today. Yeah. There were not a lot of options if you were a young person who wanted to go work for a mission-focused right. It was for like profit. Amer- oh, yeah. For that profit. That wasn't even This a idea of social right. entrepreneurship was yeah. not as large right. as it is now. And no. so I always thought, I had to go work for a nonprofit. Right. So if I'm, by the way, I, I felt that way in 2012. Yeah. I mean, when I opened Havens, the, the end goal was really like sustainability. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, I remember going there. You yeah. were the first person to be pa- totally paperless. I was um, like, <laughs> I remember going in and signing iPads and that was way before anyone else yeah. was doing that. I mean, it was, and, but my kids, I mean, I yeah. probably told the story before my kids were sort of flummoxed by like, well, if that's the goal, then why are you? Why isn't it a nonprofit? Yeah, and I was sort of like, I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, to me, it was just like I don't want to have to have like a fundraiser every right. year, so I might as well just try to make enough money to keep it going. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, but that was yeah. much later. So I yeah. think the the you know the social entrepreneurship thing and the sort of emphasis on being able to do really good through doing well. Mm-hmm. A, maybe a little lip servicey, mm-hmm. but definitely much. I mean, in two thousand and one, for sure, yeah, not, not a thing. That was not a thing. So I ended up working for a theater company for mm-hmm. three year, three years, and I learned a lot of in good Chicago? things and a lot of bad things. Yeah, in Chicago, it doesn't exist anymore. Right. And in the meantime, I got a master's degree in arts management with a focus on arts and youth and community development. So right. I had this degree that was like half social justice oriented yeah. and half you know, accounting and general basic business stuff. Right. Um, But I always thought that I was going to be in this nonprofit industry. And while I was in my 20s living in Chicago, I also didn't, I don't think I knew the word entrepreneur. I remember starting Ovenly and having, you know, I am a person who 
I get in trouble for how many ideas and opinions that I have. Like <laughs> people get upset with me. Sometimes I'm, I, I hear like, you have so many opinions and ideas all the time. It's frustrating, you know? And I, in my twenties was the same way. And yeah. so I'm always a person who has 70 zillion things going on. So yeah. while I was working at the theater company, I had 8 million jobs because I made, I, I, who knows what minimum wage was in <laughs> right. 2001. I don't remember. I right. just remember I made no money. So I would waiting tables and I was uh, hustling. I was nannying. I right. was babysitting. I was doing all the stuff in my early 20s. And then the other thing I got really into was metalsmithing. So I started uh-huh. really studying metalsmithing. And then I started a little metalsmithing and jewelry company and right. I was selling. I would launch my own trunk trunk shows i would go sell at renegade craft you know i I sold to a couple little boutiques right and so i was sort of had that entrepreneurial spirit and then i had a boyfriend at the time i was managing the business side of his business Uh he was a he was an artist turned custom carpenter right and you know i I was i didn't know (laughs) that i was a business person but i was yet i was doing all this business stuff on the side uh, I made, you know, I made a business plan to start. I was called the Minuet Fund. I decided I was going to start a youth fund with this musician that I knew. And right. then I didn't do that. And then I, I created a business plan for a yeah. food co-op. But everything was nonprofit. Because, yep. again, I thought right. that, like, in order to be yep. mission-based, I had right. to have a nonprofit. So right. none of that really worked out. <laughs> and, by the way, I was also cooking. Like, I loved to cook. So yeah. I was cooking. I started a blog because that's what you did in the early aughts. Right. And, um working in these nonprofits. And I ultimately was the director of a gallery and art center outside of Chicago. And I was completely jaded on everything. And mm-hmm. I also, I mean, I did a million things again. I taught for the Chicago Children's Museum <laughs> as their artist in residence. I'm and I would go out you to like school. running I around. Did. I, I, mean, just I worked literally. seven days a yeah. week to make like 30 grand a yeah. year. It was bananas. <laughs> but one of the jobs that I did, I would go out, you know, to different Chicago public schools and teach creative workshops to CPS students. And by the time I decided to leave Chicago, I was so jaded yeah. on the nonprofit industry. Yeah. And that's a whole other podcast. Yep. But I really was very um, off put by the yearly funding cycle. Yeah. I saw a lot of things happen where like a, you know, a nonprofit organization would get a grant and the grant mm-hmm. would be a three year grant. And they knew after year one that yep. the thing didn't work. But, but you know, you if they needed the, the administrative right. fees that are so... Yeah. I, and, and the way yeah. not-for-profit boards work, mm-hmm. I didn't like. So I felt very, very jaded. And I moved to New York and I took a job um, thinking, like, I'm going to keep this job for a year. And then I'm going to, this whole, that year I'm going to network and I'm going to get into the food industry as a career. Okay. I don't want to wait tables anymore. Right. I don't want to bartend. Yep. I want to have a job in the food industry. And New York was the place yep. at that time in Absolutely. 2007 to do that. Yeah. Um, and then I moved here, and two months later, crash recession. Oh, oh, oh total oh, recession. Oh, so yeah, it was, so that, I, right. So that was that dream of finding another job <laughs> was completely quashed right away. Right. But interestingly, I worked for the National Council of Jewish Women for three and a half years, uh-huh. and I learned so much there. And it was I actually liked, you know, I in the end was bored with my job right. and was killed by the boredom because every year was the same but yeah. I had an amazing manager who I loved who I still am to speak to right and it's really where I learned to be managed yeah. properly because in the art I just kept getting pushed into management positions when I was yeah. like 22 23 yeah. 24 years old I had zero there was skills no system there was, right no one was training me to right. be a manager and people would be like go manage those people I know I was like it I don't is know what I'm doing I didn't know, I mean, how would you know? But I didn't know for like the first couple of years that, you know, I thought if you're a nice enough person, then you could be a good enough manager, right? No, you know, don't that, make someone feel like a yeah. piece of garbage. Try to give them fairly clear. I thought that too. That doesn't work. It doesn't yeah. work at all. And you know what? People did that to me. And then I ended up doing that to people yeah. as well. The first few years of Ovenly. And we learned the hard way that yeah. just because someone's good at their job doesn't mean they'll be a good manager. It's actually, I think it's called the Peter principle. And I think it's actually the inverse. I think that's what's so fucked up about the whole thing yeah. is that you, you become you stop doing what you're actually good at and you're put in charge of people right. who do it even though you you shouldn't be, you know? I know a lot of people make fun of this book, but there's a book called Radical Candor. Mm-hmm. And one of the things the author talks about is you have your rock stars and your superstars. Right. And the superstars are the ones that you have to create a pathway for them to move up with 
the obvious notion that they're probably going to leave the organization one day because right. they're such superstars. Yep. And the rock stars are the ones who are rocks. They are good at their jobs. <laughs> yeah. Those people are so valuable. Yeah. And you have to learn ways to reward them yeah. in their positions. Like yeah. our, we have a great example. We have this amazing guy who's worked for us for five years and he was, came in as a prep guy and then we're like, Oh, you're going to do bake off and you're going to do this. And we just wanted to, raise him up within the kitchen and one right. day he was like I just want to do prep yep yeah we're like okay you know I actually thank have you for actually vocalizing that who you know he made it very clear yeah. he's like I don't want to manage a team I don't want to be responsible for whatever mm-hmm. I want to go home at night yep. and I don't want to think about work yeah. and you know so it's lovely right. you know um so how'd so, you meet Agatha so yeah moved to New York recession I applied I think I counted at one point. I think I applied to 70 jobs (laughs) between 2007 and 2010. And the whole time I was still networking with people. I had another blog. Right. And a good friend of mine from college was in a book club that was focused on reading food books, articles, all this other stuff. And I joined it. And about eight months in or maybe a year in, uh, Agatha came to a meeting that I Uh went to. Because we, you know, not everyone went to every meeting. Right. But that whole time, her friend Kara, who ran it, who was my college friend's friend, was like, I think you should meet my friend Agatha. I think you guys would get along. And so we met in this book club, and I started a conversation with everyone being like, I'm really surprised a business hasn't come out of this book club because everyone's so interested in food. Everyone's so smart. And Agatha stuck around. It was at my house that day, and she was helping me clean up, and we were talking. And she was like, you know, I actually really want to start a business. We should sit down and have coffee and talk about it. And so a week later we didn't know each other, you know, right. we later we sat down and we started planning a business together. I mean, it really was one of those moments of just completely trusting that the other person could be your business partner. Yeah. We didn't, I mean, you didn't even know what skills she had or what we didn't yeah. know. And we also didn't have the quote unquote business skills to be like, let's sit down and interview each other right. to make sure we're good partners. Like let's, yeah. what are your values? Right. You know, I think we were having a lot of conversations and I think as women, we tend to have emotional conversations right off the outset. Absolutely. So we knew that we were aligned with right. one another and, we and knew friends we had, with friends, friends that, with friends. Yeah. We knew had the same ambitious goals. What were, I mean, before we take the break, mm-hmm. what was the vision? I mean, the vision was yeah. to start a packaged gourmet bar snack company uh-huh. <laughs> that we would then outsource all the snacks to and then we would sell it for a bazillion dollars in like three years. Great. It's a bakery now. Great. Yeah. Okay. Um, on that note, we're going <laughs> to take a little break. And when we get back, we're going to hear how it went from an bar outsourced snacks. bar snack company to the Chocolate amazing cookies. powerhouse <laughs> it is today. In the Sauce is brought to you by Oatly, the vegan plant-based oat milk originally from Sweden that's now making their oat milk on this side of the Atlantic. I know you're used to hearing me talk about how important it is to have a killer product and a great brand identity, and Oatly has both. They're an oat milk company from the south of Sweden that's been around for 30 years making super sustainable oat milk. Actually, Oatly invented oat milk. Now they're in the U.S. and people are loving it. If you haven't tried Oatly, I highly suggest it. It won't change your life, but it will certainly change your mornings. You can check it out at Oatly.com. That's O-A-T-L-Y.com. I'm back with Aaron Patinkin, co-founder and CEO of Ovenly. Okay, so you met Agatha in 2010, and you guys had this plan. Um, how did you even... Well, we met in 2009. Oh, you met in 2009. Yeah. Okay. And then how long did it take, and did you actually come up with some snack products? And Oh, yeah. Okay, so tell me what happened. Well, we... So the reason we decided on these snacks is because we didn't know... We knew we wanted to start a company. We just didn't know what. We knew it was going to be food. And we go to bars and we. By the way, a, that's not a bad idea. You right? know what? I think <laughs> if we started it now, it would be much better. I actually think we were a little bit ahead of our time with yeah. this idea at the time. We were ahead of the snack yep. game, and people, I don't think, really understood it. But someone else, go take that idea. Make <laughs> it's it yours. It's I'm yours. Not doing go it. for um, it. 
So we started with snacks and we had two clients right off the bat. Um, once we finalized our, we just created two and you know, the idea was we're going to add more and right. we would go and test things. And the first client was a Brooklyn brewery, which we got, I think in like March or May of 2009, but we knew we weren't going to start working with them till I think August or September. Right. And then a bar that no longer exists called uh, Veronica people's club. And Veronica People's Club was launching in July. And the owner is a was an old friend of Agatha's. And she knew Agatha also loved to bake. Mm-hmm. And so she was like, listen, I'll sell your bar snacks. But I can't find good wholesale baked goods. And right. remember, this is 2010. Yeah. This was right at the start of this huge Brooklyn food me- yep. movement. And there were no wholesale yep. baked goods from artisan bakers. The options were Ceci Sela and Balthazar. And then what, whoever was selling the giant muffins to the bodegas. Right. That was it. Yeah. And so we started, we were like, well, you know what? We're not doing anything else. We've been talking about this for so long. Right. It's not going to kill us to make baked goods. And right. we also had this person at the time who's also in the food industry. Just, she gave a piece of advice to us that actually I think was one of the worst pieces of advice, <laughs> which was never say no. Oh you just got to say yes to everything. <gasps> oh, oh, yeah. Bad piece of advice. And so we were like, advice. well, we have to say yes to everything, right. which we did for a long time. Yeah. And then at one point we we're like, that was the worst advice yeah. ever. We should only, we should say no all the yeah. time <laughs> and only say yes to the things we're good at. Yeah. Um, so we said yes. And we started just, <laughs> we would bake in our houses and we would switch off and we'd bring up baked goods four days a week. So right. I do Monday, Wednesday, she'd do Thursday, Friday. And we was, we were making things that would have two day shelf life. So it would last the seven right. days. Uh. And I would take the G train up to Greenpoint, drop right. them off. And that was in July, late June or early July, 2010. And then by November, I had to quit my job. And by 2015, you had two shops and 100 wholesale accounts. Yeah, probably around that. So it took you about five years to just, but you were cranking the yeah. whole way through. The wholesale was the real focus for the first two years. We didn't have a store. Right. And so we did our first round. Our first capital raise was to open that store. And we raised uh, just enough money to open the store. We right. didn't raise enough money. You know, we were also lesson learned. We raised money literally to put it into drywall yeah. and equipment. Yeah. Not to hire staff. Not no to pay ourselves. Yeah. Nothing for operations. Yeah. Uh, which I recommend to anyone looking to open a retail store out yeah. there or a restaurant, make sure that whatever you're raising also covers salaries, yeah. including your own. Even if it's a base salary, totally. you need money to live. Abs- it's actually one of, I think it's like the number one, you know, those statistics that are kind of skewed and, and sort of depressing, but somewhat true that there's, you know, like 98% of businesses fail within their first whatever two years mm-hmm. or and the majority of those businesses, from what I understand, it's for it's exactly that. They forgot that there's a year or mm-hmm. two where they might not be profitable. Well, and, what I always tell yeah. people, you know, I, I ask a lot of young entrepreneurs, what is the number one reason companies go out of business? It's because they run out of cash. Yeah. It's not because people are tired. Yeah. It's not because people won't buy. Right. It's because you run out of cash. Yeah. You have to be able to support your salaries and your losses while yeah. you're growing. Otherwise, you close. If yeah. you have no money, you close down. And it goes to, you know, I think it's one of the lessons I learned in brick and mortar that I, I hold fast to for CPG because it gets even, you know, the bigger you are, and especially in CPG, when you're getting massive orders, you know, the lag between getting the order and getting, and getting paid, paid could be is 45 massive. days, it, 60 days It sometimes. can be, yeah. And it's the reason why a bunch of really beloved brands that mm-hmm. people really want don't make it because mm-hmm. they can't cover it because yep. of the cash flow issues. Yep. Okay. So as you started growing, obviously you shifted out of bar snacks. You mm-hmm. decided to do baked goods. I feel like we were an early. Yeah. You were yeah. one of our first clients. Yeah. I mean, that was probably 2012. It was 2012. It was yeah. January. And just a little factoid or trivia about Haven's Kitchen. I had no intention of using my kitchen for anything but cooking classes. I remember that. I just, I put in the coffee machine because I figured people would come to class in the morning. I thought we'd have three classes a day. That was a little um, optimistic. (laughs) Um, That people would come in the morning, they'd want like a latte, and then they'd go into class or they'd go to the market with the teacher and, you know, people were like, you should have some scones for them. And then maybe after class, they might want a cookie. 
So we hooked up with you guys and you delivered scones and cookies mm-hmm. for us. And I had no... And I literally delivered them. Right. And you would hang Back them on the, the front door, yeah. which was so cute. <laughs> um, and then we just, at some point, we're like, maybe... It seems like people want to come and actually sit. So that's when we put in some mm-hmm. seating. And that's when we started doing our own baking. And then we added lunch. And then mm-hmm. we added, you know... So, but yeah, we were... We were I like to an early adopter. Well, but, I think that yeah. what you also are pointing out is that you can create a business, especially as a small business, if you aren't financing on one particular thing, you have to do what people want. Yeah. Like you cannot be really precious about your ideas. Right. So in your case, you didn't say, no, I'm going to make the classes work. You were like, right. actually people want to come here and eat. So I, m- yeah. I better have something to sell them. A hundred percent. Well, that it goes back to what you were saying earlier. Cause I always think I'm not a sailor, but I always think of it like sailing a boat a little bit because on one hand, like you were saying, everybody, you walk down the street and people are like, have you ever thought, I think you should open in Greenwich. You know, I'm like, that would not work well for us, but thank you for the advice. You know, everyone has an idea of what you should be doing. And so on one hand, you have to be very kind of like clear with what your vision is and like, you know, keep that sale tight or whatever, you know, but then you have to let it out sometimes because sometimes every once in a while, there's some pretty good feedback from the people that totally. actually know and love yeah. your product. And th- that's where you get your best especially ideas. Especially kind of. from your clients. Especially from your clients. I mean, the people are buying your stuff are the ones who are telling you, if you did this, I would buy it. Right. You know, the guy who lives in Greenwich is the, <laughs> like, who doesn't want to have to go to the West Village is <laughs> right. the one who's like, come yeah. to Greenwich. Also, I'm like, do you, it's not a dense population <laughs> yeah. in Greenwich, but thank you. Yeah. Okay. So getting now into like nitty gritty sort of business mm-hmm. stuff. Um, any kind of top things that come to mind that you wish you had put in place earlier as the two of you were building either the partnership or starting to hire or building mm-hmm. your plans, like stuff that you would like to save yourself if you could five years ago. I mean, having more fun money, more money. That was the, that for, I mean, I'm very open about this people. I don't know why people are really hesitant to talk about money, but Oh, I find it very to talk odd. Yeah. Um, first year, we didn't take salary. Yeah. Um, I made $1,100 a month assisting a friend. Well, by the way, I was working 14 hours a day baking, yeah. and I was also had a part-time job assisting a friend of mine. Yeah. Um, and she basically gave me that job because she knew I needed to make some extra money. Right. And it was kind of charity in a yeah. way. But I made $1,300 a month <laughs> the first year assisting my friend, and my rent was $1,100 a month. Yeah. Uh, so, and I don't come from money. Yeah. Uh, this was me cashing out my 401k. I mean, I was really, it was very stressful yeah. because... Well, I, I'd like to I'd like yeah. to dig into this a little mm-hmm. bit because, you know, I'm also pretty candid. Mm-hmm. I, I did have resources mm-hmm. behind me, and it's the only reason why any of mm-hmm. this worked. Yeah. Like, if it were... And thank you for admitting that. Like, there are some people out yeah. there who, you know, you're like, how are you making this work no. for yourself? Just admit it's you have resources. It's the first thing I tell people. It alienates people who don't have resources to, to not... To think that, like, for some reason, this other person no. is just succeeding by luck. Yeah. I, I actually... I find it... To do it's, that. it's so much of, like... I think the same thing about the way that the media talks mm-hmm. about entrepreneurship. Overnight yeah. success. Really? That person was in it for 15 years oh, yeah, I hate before, that. right? I hate that so, so much. So, no, I mean, and for the first yeah. couple of years, I didn't even want to speak, you know, when you're invited mm-hmm. to talk to entrepreneurs. I didn't honestly even think I should because I didn't have to raise money. Mm-hmm. I self-funded. It wasn't my, mm-hmm. you know, I have five kids. Obviously, I'm not supporting my five children <laughs> on my cooking school income, right? Like, there's a lot. Mm-hmm. And... I was embarrassed, A, because Mm -hmm. it made me feel like I um, wasn't scrappy somehow or Mm -hmm. I didn't hustle the way everyone else did, so I didn't deserve to be up there. Mm -hmm. And B, it made me feel like I was was giving them an un like an unrealistic vision of what it could be. Of course you can build a two or three story building in flat iron like that when you know, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to do that Mm -hmm. if I if I had to either, Mm -hmm. you know, work for my friends or whatever but you still had to budget it out and absolutely and And that's where I got to and ask for it a hundred figure it out yeah and work harder than you know anyone even knows that I work for Mm -hmm. sure right Mm -hmm. so I got over it and but I do think that it's important you know we talk a lot 
on this podcast about like what exactly does quote unquote bootstrapping mm-hmm. mean? And if you don't have a backup, you know, if, if, if this is your income, right, or this is what you plan on doing for your life, you should plan on not making any money mm-hmm. for three to five years. years. Yes, exactly. I mean, I mean, this is this, I thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Because one of the things I think people don't realize is that I just no one really if someone told me that I didn't listen, I just I yeah. just don't remember anyone telling me that. And to be honest, the only advisors we, we would ask people for advice. And the only advisors we really had were people who already came from money or had access to capital through parents or spouses. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there was a different type of stake for Agatha and I, and I'm almost happy I didn't realize it because I don't know that I would have started the company. But when I am advising people who don't have that same access to means, I say, listen, you need to make sure you are raising money to cover your salary because the amount of stress that I lived under that first year was really almost broke me. I mean, it was a really hard place. And to be totally honest, like I used all my meager savings from my arts and nonprofit career. And I also, you know, didn't have health insurance for over a year. And then I also totally, I, I, I am a person who maxed out her credit cards and then ruined her credit for like three years yeah. because it, that was the only thing I needed to do to survive. Am I happy that I Step that I it. survived? Yeah, yeah. But you know, it but took you're, a but number that's of what time. Yeah. that's what the statistics are, right? And and you're one of the unusual ones. Mm. And it's not, and you know, no no offense to you, but for other people out there, it's not because somehow you worked harder necessarily or it you just I'll tell you I'll tell yeah. you why I'm one of the people who survived it's yeah. because I quickly realized that I needed to raise, raise money, money and also learn business yeah so I am I think I'm a very quick study with yeah. business so you know I'll tell you something that I did right off the bat that helped our cash flow you know I hear a lot of people be like I can't collect my money from my clients right well you know what i i got sick after three months of running the business of chasing people down for money so from the first year i said if you want to be my client you have to put a credit card or yeah a bank account on file with us and we'll either pull that money or we'll charge it and if you don't give us the money we will stop delivering to you i cannot tell you how many people tell me they're like, well, this client's so big, I can't get rid of yeah. them. I'm like, if they don't pay you, yeah, you're not making I money. I don't care if it's the biggest company right. in the world. They're using you as a bank, and you're a single person totally. who's a small business. You should sue them. It's why like, we never sold to Dean and DeLuca. Oh. Because we yeah. heard very early on they didn't right. pay their vendors. And, well, but it's they a really did good until account. They really, did until right. they were bought out. Right. And then they stopped. It's a really yeah. good account. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. really good for marketing. And I'm like, it's yep. not, I'm not doing it for marketing. You know, yeah. I mean, there's, I think like any, I think like any business, you have to decide like, okay, what you is can the only, goal here? And also you, know? you can only absorb a marketing expense like that if you have money. Right. Because I know most co- small companies I know now have a cash flow problem. Right. Totally. So let's go to that yeah. for a second, because it seems to me like right now um, there is a lot of money around. I don't know how much longer that's going to last. Mm-hmm. I don't know if these kind of um, a great brand and a good idea are going to get funded mm-hmm. seemingly as quickly as they are mm-hmm. in this climate. Um, but it seems to me like there are a lot of people that don't want to, it seems to me like if, if you can't sort of self-fund it for at least a year or two and get it going and see if it's got legs um, then you should raise money pre-revenue. Um, I think a lot of people are nervous about doing that, A, because they haven't raised money before, or B, they've heard somewhere that they're not supposed to give equity away. I think you and I both agree that like 100% of a dollar is not great compared to 20% of <laughs> a couple million dollars, right? So um I think, you know, before the, one of the first things that I sort of advise, and I wonder if you do the same with people that have ideas that come to you is like, have a very serious sit down with yourself. And if you have a partner about the money before 
anything else because people get very excited about the ideas and there's all of these incredible people around you that are eager to design your idea and help you, you know, social media eyes your idea. But it, it, no one is really digging into how expensive this is. Mm-hmm. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I tell people, well, even before we get into the money, it, I'm making all this stuff just on my website, by the way. Yeah. I, I get asked so many questions all the time that I started just making resources because I found that I didn't have time to sit down to, people with and everyone talk. So to I, make their deck. I've created right. all these decks. I've created yeah. all these pro formas. And I'm just, as I'm, I have to clean them up and then I put them on my website, which is just AaronPatinkin.com. But yeah. one of the things that I do is I've created a um, Google survey mm-hmm. that I send to people. And it's asked questions like, what will happen... <laughs> If you run out of money, yeah. does it ruin you financially right. or not? Why you? Can you, you know, I ask all these questions. I don't look at the answers. The right. answers are just shared For with you. that person. Right. And it, but it helps kind of think about, well, here are the real stakes here. Yeah. Can you handle that? Yep. And if you can, then start your business. Right. Like, I don't think, I think people ponder and plan for far too long. And even the ones with good ideas where a lot of people just don't, take things off the ground because they sit there and think about them for too long like you need to decide at what at some point you're either comfortable starting a business or not so that's step one even before you start the business and raise money decide if you're comfortable starting the business yeah and what those things mean so that's usually where I start yeah and then when it does come down to brass tacks and money I tell people to make a pro forma it's so unbelievably shocking to me yeah and when I talk to people and they say, well, I'm not really good with money, so I'm just going to have someone else do it. You cannot yeah. have someone else do it. No. You have to do it. Yeah. I don't care if someone is sitting there helping you enter data yep. or creating that pro forma for you. If you do not know your numbers and you are the leader of the company yep. or if your partner doesn't know those numbers, you yep. know, there are, par- you know, I'm in yeah. business partnerships where I'm the person who understands money. That's fine. But someone at the top yep. has got to be the person who understands yep. the money. And partners who understand money should be trying to educate their partners yep. as much as they can about how the company works financially Absolutely. because it will, in the end, prevent people from overspending or over going over budget. Yep. That's Absolutely. something that we try to do at Ovenly with our managers. We are open book. Um, you know, I advise people and, you know, people who have a hard time understanding numbers, I will sit down line by line and explain as best I can. Yeah. I tell people to take accounting. Yeah. It, you want to do yourself a favor, take an accounting class. Well, That's especially very in, valuable like, in CPG too. You know, I mean, I had a lot to learn about margins, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, I mean, the margins are thin in yep. all of our businesses, Business of pennies. Um, but at the end of the day, right, it, it comes down to pennies. So mm-hmm. if you're tolling is, you know, 81 cents, but you could be paying, you know, 78 cents per box. Mm -hmm. That's massive, you know, and I don't know that people really understand Mm -hmm. that until, you know, until they've learned it either the hard way. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, you know, I think, I mean, I tend to, I tend to sort of, um, I don't know, relate better to, creative people or food people who then have made products as opposed to finance people who have identified Mm -hmm. a white space Mm -hmm. and then they're really good at that. So I tend to speak more to that first group, you know, that second group, they have other Mm -hmm. things that they've got this Mm -hmm. part pretty probably. So when uh, we don't have that much time, so I want to get to other stuff. So, (laughs) so wait, quick, really quickly, know your numbers. And then if you know your numbers, then you can talk to investors done. That's, right. that's the thing. Investors, they're going to love, investors don't love ideas. They love their potential for right. return on their investment. Right. So you can have the best idea in the world, but if you can't show investors how they're going to make their money back and then some that's better than market rate, even if you're a triple bottom line company, you're not going to get invested in. Right. So you got to get, you got to know your numbers. Yeah. And I think, you know, people make the mistake of thinking that somehow they're going to get money from a bank. Yeah, and no. you're not going to, you're going to, you're not going to get money from a bank, not to start um, maybe spent, five right. or 10 years. Then, yeah. Know. I mean, it, it's okay. So <laughs> when you, um, when you did that round of investment, I mean, cause you've done, a, you've done more than one now, right? At Ovenly we've done, uh, we did a, a small seed investment with a friend who almost immediately got bought out. And then we did a friends and family raise that was not enough money. Then we did a 
real seed round far too late in the life cycle of the business. We should have done it far earlier. And that was 2015. That was in 2015. And then we did raise money from a lender who is a vision and value lined uh, company organization that only funds companies that create good jobs. So we've done Great. sort of three rounds. And so, two, you know, friends, family, seed, institutional debt. And aside from, um, you know, doing it earlier, mm-hmm. what would be sort of, you know, top two or three sort of words of wisdom that you've learned from that? I mean, something that you mentioned earlier, know your margins. Yeah. Um, and don't be afraid to raise prices if you're not making money. Because the truth of the matter is, if you can't make money within your business model, then the business is not viable. Right. So even if you're going to lose money in that first three to five years, plan it. Right. And just show that you Where? have a pathway to making right. money. I think that that's really important. And raise enough money. I mean, earlier or not earlier, even in that secondary round of investment, we probably should have raised twice what we raised. Right. Um, and that's something kind of I learned the hard way where it's like you may think you only need X raise 25% more than you think. Yeah. 30% more than you think. Yeah. Um, so I think those are two big things that I didn't know. Awesome. Okay. We have, I mean, I wanted to talk <laughs> about your hiring practices, which are amazing. I wanted to talk about a bunch of other things, but I also do well, you can always hear... go at oven.ly and check out, we share all that information. Yeah. On, on it's our website. very cool guys. Like go on oven.ly because they do, they have these, um, just these incredible practices where they don't do traditional interviewing and candidates come in and they just start with a trial and you have all these amazing statistics about, you know, hiring formerly incarcerated and political refugees and, you know, at risk communities. And mm-hmm. it's just awesome. I think so. I would like to do that, but <laughs> I want to talk about Seymour. Okay. Good. Let's talk about it. Tell me about Seymour. Okay. So as I have progressed through my career, I've realized that access to capital and having these conversations, and that's where you and I are like the same person, um, are so important. Because what I realized being a woman, and it started with my own personal experience, obviously, was that I was not being led into conversations, and it started feeling a little bit purposeful. Yeah. Um, And also, I was being treated by certain people in a way that... I mean, I I give this example all the time, but I had um, a potential investor wrote Agatha an email telling her that he didn't believe that my email that I had sent him was written by me because it was too smart. And he (gasps) wanted to know what man had written my email. Wait. And so there's so many there's so many layers. First Whoa. of all, he couldn't even email me <laughs> and say who wrote this email for you. He had to email what? my business partner. Oh my gosh! So wait, what year was that? 2015. Holy mackerel! So, yeah. you know, there are things like that when yeah. when they're exp- and I honestly think this person thought it was a normal <laughs> thing to do. Right. Um, yeah. And so that process in 2015. It was just very eye-opening. We yeah. had, and you know what? I'll be honest. We met with a group of women who yeah. treated us like we were 19 when we were 35. I had a few really unsavory female yeah. experiences. And, and so too. I really was feeling, I, and then I don't, I hate, you know, I'm a liberal. <laughs> I hate Trump. Uh, and then Trump won and yeah. the Weinstein stuff happened. And I was, I was starting to have like severe anxiety yeah. and I had this moment of really, realizing some of the ways I had been socialized. I started feeling angry. Yep. And I was like, you know what? This is not healthy for me. And so what can I do? And the really the big thing for me I started thinking about in 2016 was what can I do to promote overlooked entrepreneurs? Yeah. And so I started just advising a bunch of people. I started my own what my own podcast called Start to Sale because yep. I wanted to have conversations that people don't have because most podcast hosts who host about business, except honestly for the Heritage Network, right. are journalists interviewing business people and yeah. they're not having these or open venture conversations. fund people or venture fund people or yeah. tech people. That's yep. a very different industry. Yep. And so in 2017, I started making a plan to think about how I could really hands-on help people. And then 2018, last year, and you know, I kind of put, started putting out in the world that I wanted to help people launch businesses. Mm-hmm. And so last February of 2018, um, a mutual friend of Cara Nicoletti and mine named Marion Bull um, introduced us, and Cara was interested in starting a business. And Cara is a fourth-generation butcher. 
Um, she's worked a bunch of different places and she has a huge following. She one chopped um, and she started creating these sort of uh, mixed. I can't reveal too much because we're not launched, but these really interesting sausage flavors. Uh-huh. And so I love the idea so much that last year I created the business plan for it. You know, her idea was like, I'm going to create a butcher shop. Right. And we went through this whole process. What do you want out of life? Right. I mean, that's one of the big questions. Where do you want to end up? Yep. And so that was my big question for her. I was like, do you want to be a butcher behind a butcher counter? Because right. if you do, start a butcher shop. Yep. That's a great idea. But if you don't, yep. then you need to think about a different way yep. to make money with your amazing product. And so that's how we started getting involved with each other. Uh, we're launching in November, but I basically helped Kara from the moment right. she decided to... She agreed with the business plan that yeah. I came out with, which is a CPG play, uh, triple bottom line, first public benefits LLC in the meat industry, probably. Uh, public benefits LLC is a m- mandated triple bottom line. Right. Uh, it's only in the so state triple of is environment or social. Yeah, and exactly. Capital. Yeah. yeah. And then um, you know helped her put together a fundraising plan, held her hand through fundraising meetings. Very cool. I mean, one of the things that I wanted to do was be the director, right. her director. Yeah. And so we would go into fundraising Which meetings. Goes back to your yes. training. Yep. Uh, no, seriously. It's like, yeah. it's directing is what made me yeah. be able to do this. We'd sit in fundraising meetings. She would do her pitch. She'd talk to investors. We'd leave and I'd you have a page notes. of notes. Yeah. Because no one did that for no, me. So I did I had to dreamy. learn. I had dreamy. to learn how to speak to investors yeah. by myself because no one told me and so I happen to be a quick our businesses for a lot of money and yes. we have our own capital yeah. to invest yeah we're just gonna do that that's what I want to do yeah. I mean this that's is what I want to do too this is how I spend like the, you know I work full-time at Ovenly yeah. and then I spend my evenings yeah helping people do this yeah. and you know I have a couple people that I'm working on their projects with now cool. and I I fall into that in different ways like with Kara full on co-founder right. help you launch with some other people. I'm filling in that section of let me teach you how yep. to speak to investors. Yep. Um, so that's really my yeah. goal. I want to help overlooked entrepreneurs with scalable ideas, launch their companies. Very cool. I mean, that's kind of what I want to do too, except you're actually doing it, which <laughs> makes me feel a little bit like <laughs> kind of bad about myself, but well, thank you for you coming, Erin. That don't was feel great. Bad. Everyone know. can participate <laughs> no, in this. If you know, know. things, we yes. can do it together. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to help anybody. Um, okay. Anyway, last second, um, <laughs> best moment. Can you think of one? I'm sure there've been many. Yes, I can. I think it was like in year six or seven. I mean, it's not that long ago. Maybe it's like year six. Uh, I went to work one day and I said, you know, Agatha, I don't think we're going out of business. Oh. And she was like, I don't think we are either. Wow. And it was that day, it, it was probably year five or six where I was like, oh, we created a thing. That's a thing. And unless we really fuck up, yeah. it's going to last. Ah, That was I a really good moment. I just got chills again. Erin, <laughs> thank you so thank much. You. This was like beyond inspiring. We have so much more to talk about, but Matt's being kind of a jerk in the box over there and making faces <laughs> at me. But we're happy that you're back, Matt, and we missed you. He's like, I was only gone for one week, but it felt like a really long time for us. Um, anyway, best engineer ever. And um, we have, I think, like 10 or 11 new episodes coming up in the fall season. With Listen lots to all of, of them, everyone. Yes. Um, lots of fun guests uh, from all different sort of perspectives on the industry. And um, thank you for listening. Thank you, guys. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.